Good evening. You can say it back, it's okay. <laughs> it's cordial. This is the South. Um, our call to worship tonight comes from Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, which says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people, and pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Let's worship the living God together as we stand and sing hymn number 521. You may be seated. We will now receive uh, the tithes and offerings. We'll play through a stanza of this next hymn, and then we'll all join in after that one time playing through. And the hymn will be number 629.
and we will take a few moments now to uh, address God in prayer. I've asked Charlie to start us. If you feel so led, then you're welcome to pray, and I will close our time of prayer. Let's pray.
Father, thank you again for uh, allowing us to gather here today. Such a special privilege and blessing on the Lord's Day to be with the Lord's people and uh, lifting up the Lord's praises. We pray that, again, for folks who are having having to have work done on their homes now, uh, that you would be merciful and gracious to them during that process. We're so thankful that, that we made it through this past week. Um, thankful that, as the psalmist says, we, we lift our eyes to the help, to the hills looking for help, and we always know that you are there because the Lord that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Would you smile upon us this night? Would you bless us? We all have needs. Uh, some of us have needs we don't even know that we have, but you can show us, and then you can meet those needs. So I pray tonight that you'd minister to us deeply, meet the needs of our hearts, uh, bring healing to us, bring encouragement to us, speak to us plainly, boldly, and loudly through your holy word, and allow us to leave this place filled with wonder, love, and praise. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight can be found in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, I chose this passage because I thought, well, we were going to be in the life of Moses in Exodus on Sunday morning, so why not just flip over a few pages and look, uh, look further at the life of Moses. And one of the things uh, you'll notice, and again, I picked these texts before the flood, but they're both water um, it was not intentional. They're both water-related. Uh, and, you know, really, Moses, if you look at his life, one way of summarizing him, he's, he's a master of water. And he's born, where does he go? He's put into water, right? He's put in a basket, he's floated down the river. And then he, uh, of course, later we see him parting. He turns the Nile into blood. He parts the Red Sea. And here we're going to see him strike a rock which leads to water coming out of the rock. So let's read the passage. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And this ends this reading of God's word. Massa and Meribah, Meribah, the place so terrible they named it twice. Or so nice they named it twice. It's 
that breaks the rhyme. But regardless, so this passage, it's pretty simple. It's about thirsty people looking for something to drink. But think about that on kind of a meta level. That's the world. The world is full of thirsty people who are looking for something to drink. And this passage, if that's you, tells you how that thirst can be satisfied. It's telling us that only God can satisfy that thirst. And it's showing us that he satisfies that thirst in the most surprising way imaginable. Uh, And he does it through the image in this passage of a trial. So two points again. I'm going to roll with this. The trial and the verdict to show us how our thirst can be satisfied. Number one, the trial. So C.S. Lewis has a collection of essays called God in the Dock. And that collection of essays is named after an essay called God in the Dock that's in that book. This, and he was asked to, asked to write an essay on the subject of, as an evangelist and as an apologist, C.S. Lewis, what's the most challenging thing you see in the modern world that is facing Christianity? And what he, the way he answers it is really rather surprising. So he says one thing was linguistics, and what he meant by that was he realized for himself to be a, a good communicator of the gospel that he needed to be able to speak like normal people who were walking the streets, not like an academic you know, with his head up in the clouds, which Lewis was that. But he, he realized he had to learn modern language, had to learn slang and the like. Like my kids taught me the word sus a while back, and now I say it all the time, and I'm, like, I'm a nerd because of it. But you've got to keep up with the kids' language. That's the idea. But here's the second thing. This was, he said, the most distinctly difficult part of sharing the gospel in the modern world was for him. The greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience, any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian preachers, uh, Christian message was in those days unmistakably evangelistic. It was good news. It promised healing to those who were sick. We have to convince our hearers now of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. Who knows? But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. So Lewis is absolutely right that we have a modern problem of man thinking that he's the ultimate judge of God. Defend yourself to me. But actually I think he's wrong about something here too. And he's wrong in saying it was a new problem. Because it wasn't. Because it's what we see happening in our passage. It's what Israel is doing, is, is doing to God. They're putting him in the dock. God is standing trial before Israel. That's a, it's just a striking thing. So this is a formal ceremony in the passage. Moses is standing in the position of a judge along with elders, with his staff, his judging staff, the staff of judgment in his hand. Verse 5 of the passage, The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So see, this is an official. Moses has been established as a judge. In Exodus 2, going back, when Moses first stands up and kills an Egyptian in behalf of the people of Israel, One of the Israelites says to him, Who made you a judge?
Yes. Moses was already beginning to act in that capacity. If you skip to the next chapter in Exodus 18, from our passage, it shows Moses in his official capacity judging the people in the presence of the elders. And in the New Testament, Jesus says that Moses is still acting as a judge now through the instrument of the law of God. So John 5.45, for instance, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. See, Moses still stands as a judge over those who don't know Christ. So if Moses is standing as a judge, the next question is, what are the charges? What exactly is happening here? Well, the people have accused Moses and God of, A, trying to kill them by bringing bringing them to a place that didn't have water, and B, of God abandoning them, not being present with them interesting. It's like a lot of atheists. It's saying, there is no God, but I'm really, really angry at him. That's almost the position that the Israelites are in. And their complaint is ironic because in verse 7 of the passage, it says that Moses called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's denying the presence of God. Remember last week when we looked at the burning bush, we saw that when, when God reveals his name to Moses, Moses says, who am I supposed to tell these people is sending me? And the hayah, the karate chop word, it's I am with you, I will be with you. This is God's essence, it's his name, I'm with you, is his name. And they're saying he's not among them. They're charging him really with something that contradicts his entire being. But why? Why make those charges? Why say God's not with us? Well, Again, it always comes back to circumstances, doesn't it? It's because of their circumstances. Why would God lead? Yes, he, took, he got us out of bondage. He saved us from slavery. He took us across the Red Sea on dry land. They've seen all this. They've seen the thunder and the lightning of God's presence. They've seen the, the glory cloud and the fire and all these things. But because they're now circumstantially in a place where they think that they're not going to be able to get anything to drink, they're questioning God's very presence among them. So it's not a new problem, is it? It's an old problem, people questioning God, uh, putting God on trial. I've had you know, so many experiences of this in the ministry, uh, of people making this exact charge against God in so many ways. You know, like one that comes to mind was I was teaching a Bible study years ago, and this sweet little lady started coming to the Bible study who was not a member of our church and was not used to the uh, type of teaching that we were doing in the church where we were like really getting into texts and things like that. And I was teaching on the book of Joshua. And boy, she was not ready for the book of Joshua. And at one point, she interrupted something that was being said. I can't remember what, but regardless, she said, I'm tired of hearing about the, the Jews and their genocidal God, Yahweh. Okay, it was a room full of people. <laughs> You're the pastor. You're the moderator. How do you respond? But she actually called God evil and genocidal in front of a group of Christians. Now, I wasn't going to explain how I responded to it, but I feel like I have to now because I asked the rhetorical question. But what I tried to... I asked her what she thought of Jesus. Do Do you think Jesus was a nice guy? Sweet guy? Loving guy? Not evil? Not genocidal? Oh, absolutely! Jesus is wonderful! Well, I love Jesus. He's great. 
so I said, well, you've you got a problem because Jesus is Yahweh. How do I back that up? Well, because in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter, in his great sermon on Pentecost, quotes Joel chapter 2, where Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. Guess who Peter applies that to in Acts 2? Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Yahweh is the name of the triune God, equally applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she just, then she did like stare at me like a cow thing, and we just didn't talk about it anymore. But at least tried to address the concern. That was one example. Um, I told you uh, in a previous sermon a few weeks ago, I had, I was listening to the radio. Um, it was a sports show, actually, but they, uh, uh, Paul Feinbaum, I think it was, and he has his bishop on, you know, to answer questions occasionally from the audience. And a woman called in whose husband had died, and she had viciously cursed God and was now afraid that she could never be forgiven. But again, what is it to curse God? It's to put him in the dock. It's to put him on trial. It's to render a verdict upon him. I read a short story uh, by the Jewish writer Edgar Carrot. He's, uh, he's actually an Israelite Jew. His works have been translated into English. He's very accomplished. And he has a story that, that illustrates this God in the dock mentality really, really well. So there's a man who's severely injured, is paralyzed in the story. His nurse who cares for him, back to health, uh, ends up marrying him. So he gets married to this younger woman who was his nurse. And at the wedding, they're before a priest, and uh, this is what it says about the priest. <clears throat> it says, he planned to say that God loves them and wishes them the best. Now this is as he's looking at this guy in a wheelchair who's been you know, extremely hurt through this accident. The priest didn't know that for sure, that God loved them and wished to bless them. He tried lots of times to convince himself that he did, that he knows that God loves everyone and wishes us all only the best. But that day, when he married that battered man, not even 30 and already covered with scars and sitting in a wheelchair, it was harder for him to believe God loves you both uh, God loves you both, he finally said, anyway. God loves you both and wishes you all the best, he said, and was ashamed. Fast forward in the story, the new wife, the nurse wife, is murdered. And the priest has to do the funeral. And again, watch this disabled man having his wife buried. It says, the disabled man grabbed the priest by his robe and said, but you told us, you told us that God loves us. If he loves us, why did he do such a terrible thing to us? The priest had a ready-made answer, an answer they'd taught him in priest school. Something about God working in mysterious ways, and that now that the woman was dead, she was surely closer to him and better off. But instead of using that answer, the priest began cursing. He cursed God viciously, insulting and hurtful curses, the likes of which had never been heard in the world before. Curses so insulting and hurtful that even God was offended. If anyone in this world has endured cursing and venom and vitriol and having false verdicts rendered upon him, it's God. In our passage, he's allowing himself to be put in the dock. He's allowing himself to go on trial. Modern people put him on trial. Ancient people put him on trial. That's not surprising. What's surprising is the verdict. This is point two. So back to the passage. Verse 5 of Exodus 17. 
the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, here's the key phrase, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the staff of judgment comes down by the hand of Moses. What does it strike? Key question. The rock, right? It strikes the rock. But it strikes more than the rock. Notice where God said he is going to be during this trial. On the rock. God says, I'm going to stand upon the rock. So when, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. So what's being struck? It's not just the rock. It's God. It's God being struck. The staff of judgment is coming down upon God as though he were guilty of abandoning Israel. He's taking the blow. How could this be? What does this mean? Well, that's a great question. It goes back to the idea of Genesis 15, which is one of the key passages in the Old Testament, where God is cutting his covenant with Abraham. So the ritual was, Abraham go, slaughter a group of animals, various sorts of animals, cut them in half, and the halves, divide them so that we can pass through the pieces. And in the ancient world, this was a very common practice. The principle was, you'd slaughter these animals, you'd divide the pieces, the two parties who were entering into a covenant with one another would pass through the pieces, making some sort of agreement in the middle, with the result being, the symbolism of the ritual being, if I break this covenant... May what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be destroyed. May I, may I be utterly annihilated if I break the terms of the covenant. Then in Genesis 15:17, it describes it. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Notice what's missing there. It's Abraham. Abraham is passively sitting by. God alone passes through the pieces. What he's saying to Abraham in doing that is, Abraham, I am so committed to my promises to you. I'm so committed to my covenant with you that not only will I take the curses of the covenant upon myself if I fail to keep it, I'll take the curses of the covenant upon myself if you fail to keep it. That's how committed I am. And so he takes Abraham's place. I'll take the guilty verdict for you. I'll take the death penalty for you. Well, again, you ask the question, how can that be? God can't die. God's an eternal being. But then fast forward to 1 Corinthians 10.4 where Paul says the people of Israel all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I remember years ago trying to explain this concept of Christ being the rock that was struck in the wilderness and uh, this is in a Sunday school class and somebody piped up and said, are you just making this stuff up? Where are you getting this from? No, there it is, Paul. He said, Christ was the rock. That rock that Moses struck was Christ giving a preview of what he was going to do on the cross. Just like God passing through the pieces of the animals was giving a preview of what Christ was going to do on the cross. He was going to be destroyed. He was going to be annihilated. He was going to come under the guilty verdict and be judged in our place. He was going to go into the dock. He was going to take the guilty verdict for his people. And he was going to take the blow of God's wrath so that we could be freed from fear of God's wrath. 
So this passage about the rock, when you view it this way, and by the way, uh, you can Google, nobody knows if this is for sure, or whatever device you prefer for search engine. I've got, not here, but I've been admonished in the past for like I'm promoting Google or something. I'm not, it's just what I use. Um, If you look up the rock at Horeb, you'll find images. There is a rock in that area uh, that's elevated up. It looks like it had, archaeologically, it looks like it had water surrounded and it's got a giant like Star Wars style lightsaber gash right down the middle of it. It just just stimulates the imagination. But Paul is telling us, 1 Corinthians, Christ was that rock. Symbolically, that rock was pointing to what Christ was going to do on the cross. Now, when you understand that, it should change and shape the way you look at the theme of rocks throughout the whole Bible. I use the term, I I got it from a, a writer, a literary writer, not a theological writer, but in literature they talk about through-line objects. A through-line object is an item that keeps appearing in a story uh, over and over again. Like in the Titanic, it's, it's the necklace. It you know, shows up at key points uh, in the story. Well, this rock becomes a through-line object in the Bible. It just keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. But you've got to have that first reference in Exodus 17 to understand exactly what it means. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Psalm 18.2, this is David. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, all those terms, you know, they have in common. Uh, my, I learned this from my uh, seminary professor, Miles Van Pelt. He used to say this a lot, and it, it stuck with me, and it's helpful. And I hope it's helpful for you. All, like a shield, a fortress, a rock, what do they have in common? Well, a shield, for instance, what does it do? What's its function? Well, it's protection, right? But it's protection from what? From being struck by something, right? It takes the blow so that you don't take the blow. The same thing with a fortress. Why do you go into a fortress? So when you know, the arrows are flying, the walls are taking the blow so that your heart's not taking the blow. It's, it's a shield. It's a fortress. It takes the blow in your place. And see, that's the image of the rock, in the Old Testament. It's the thing that takes the blow for us. It takes the, the, the verdict, the blow of Moses' staff so that we don't have to. That's the idea. Another example. Psalm 62.6 He, God alone, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And then the clearest one that shows you these are references to the story in Exodus 17 is Psalm 95. So for instance, in verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But if you skip down to verse 6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah. Direct reference back to Exodus 17. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. See, biblically, The rock is the place where God takes the judgment in behalf of his people. So when Jesus says, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? He's saying probably more than you ever thought. Because what he's saying is, with all of this knowledge in the Old Testament about the rock, he's saying the wise man builds his house upon my suffering on the cross. That's the rock. It's not just generically upon Christ. It's upon Christ in his suffering in our behalf. 
It's him. It's building our lives on Jesus being stricken, smitten, and afflicted, as the hymn says it. I'm going to read some words from that hymn, and just listen. This, that hymn is a perfect example of someone trying to actually build their house on the rock, the way they're describing Jesus here. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tell me ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, yet the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation, his the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. See, that's it. Making the sufferings of Christ the rock on which you build your life. When you build your life on the foundation of the suffering of Christ, what do you get? You get water. You get spiritual nourishment. You get strength. This and this alone can quench spiritual thirst. Not some vague God, abstract God sitting up in the heavens. The suffering Christ is pure water. If you're feeling spiritually empty, spiritually thirsty, spiritually dehydrated, you need to go back to the rock. That's the idea. That story I mentioned by Edgar Carriott earlier. I want to read one more part from it. So after the curse, the uh, priest curses God viciously. Curses so insulting and hurtful that even God was offended. This is how the story ends. God then entered the church on the disabled ramp. He was in a wheelchair too. What do you think, God asked the priest? Did I create all of you like this because I'm some kind of sadist who enjoys all this suffering? I created you like this because it's what I know. Then the priest fell to his knees and begged his forgiveness. If a stronger God had come to his church, he probably would have carried on cursing him even if he had to go to hell for it. But seeing a disabled God made him feel regret and sorrow. And he really did want this God's forgiveness. Now, I don't think Edgar Carrot has a, has a clue what he, how profound what he's saying in that short story is because he's not a believer in Christ. But he nailed it. That He nailed this, that it wasn't seeing an all-powerful, ethereal, abstract God in the skies who's sovereign and orchestrating everything and doesn't really care. You know, it, it wasn't that that was, that was going to change, that ever will change anybody. But it was a suffering God. It was a God who was able to speak to our suffering. And so when I'm counseling people, this has happened. People are angry at God. They'll say things like, something happened in my life, caused major pain, it was major disappointment, I'm struggling with God, I'm angry with God, I'm even questioning if God exists. And my response to that is, who is your God? Because if he is that abstract God in the sky, off, distant, then okay, 
I totally understand why you're angry with him and why you're questioning him. But if your God is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, I want you to look at him on the cross with the crown of thorns, with the blood streaming down, with pierced hands, with nails driven through his feet, spear in his side, shame, suffering for the world to see. Now look in that God's eyes and tell me he doesn't care. You can't. He's the rock that was struck for us. And when you get this, living water starts flowing out and flowing out. Maybe you are legitimately struggling right now. Maybe you are angry with God and doing your best to hide it. I want to remind you, you're not in strange company. And that we all need to go back to this rock. Like we're all, we're all, it's one way of summarizing life, I guess is we're all just striking rocks all the time. Looking, give me meaning. Give me purpose. Like, give me water. And the gospel's crying out saying, no, this is the only place. It's like C.S. Lewis put it uh, in uh, Silver Chair, right? Remember the story where Jill Pohl meets Aslan? Uh, beautiful. Aslan is sitting by a river, and uh, the lion says to her, are you thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Then I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go back and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's it. We're all looking for a thousand different streams to try to give us meaning and purpose. When the only stream, the only rock upon which we can build our lives is the suffering of Christ in our behalf. Let's pray. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let my, me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood which from thy riven side flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. Lord, might we in our own hearts drink deeply from the Spirit whom Christ has given to us. May we drink deeply from the well of Christ's sufferings. May we drink deeply from the purpose-giving, life-altering power of that cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for feeding us in our souls tonight, and I pray that we would leave this place walking and leaping and praising God, thanking you that the river of life has been opened to us, for we've found the one stream, the only stream, the Lord Jesus.
in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 499, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.